This is the Farm and Garden Show, and I'm your host, Michael Foley. Today we're discussing the legacy for California agriculture of two giants, one almost unknown, the other widely regarded as the godfather of organic farming in the state and beyond. Felix Gillet was a Frenchman who arrived in Nevada City, California in 1859 when he was 24. There, Gillet, who came from a family of nurserymen, opened a barber shop and began importing plants. The other, Amigo Bob Cantasano, was a founder of California Certified Organic Farmers, prime mover of the Ecological Farming Association, which puts on the Ecofarm Conference, and an organic consultant who worked with growers great and small across the state. One of Mendocino County's best organic farmers, Irene Engber of Irene's Garden at Black Oak Ranch, told me once that she learned everything she knew from Amigo Bob. Chile died in 1908. Amigo Bob, tragically, after a long bout with cancer in 2020. They come together in the Felix Gile Institute, which Amigo Bob, his wife Jennifer Bliss, and Adam Newber established in the early 2000s to recover the heritage trees that Gile brought to the Sierra foothills. I'm speaking with Adam right now, nursery manager and uh, co-founder of the Institute, and we want to learn more about the work of the Felix Gile Institute. So, Adam, first of all, welcome to the show and the Casey Y X and Z. What's the what is the Felix Gillet Institute? Yeah, Michael, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here and kind of share the story of the plants and the institute and uh, Felix himself. Um, well, Felix Gillet Institute um, is based on Felix Gillet, who was. Uh, a gold rush nurseryman in the late 1800s in Nevada City. And what he did is he imported uh, and bred many plants um, into California, um, including starting, and he started a lot of uh, perennial agriculture in California. He brought in the walnuts, the chestnuts. He brought in filberts to Oregon. He, and he brought in... Um, an astronomical amount of plants and varieties through Northern California. Um, and there's still many of those plants around in Nevada city and, uh, and around here in the Nevada, Nevada, um, here in Nevada foothills. And so what we do, Felix Joy Institute and, um, a group of us and a lot of volunteers and community members, uh, we all go out and find to try to find the best fruit that's still out there surviving in the orchards and the homesteads uh, of the Gold Rush era. And, um, you know, since 19, early 1900s, uh, 95% of the varieties that were available to our great-grandparents in the early 1900s are no longer available today. Right. Yeah. about 5% left. And yeah. So we're just trying to recover the best that we can find. Uh-huh. And um, so... First of all, how do you how do you identify them, or are you purely interested in uh, varieties that were brought by Felix Gillet, or are you looking for more? Yeah, well, all the above, really. Um, well, we do our best to identify, uh, but um, Jennifer Bliss, Amigo's um, wife, 
she's really good at IDing, and we pour she pours through, and we work together on trying to find historical identifications for them uh, using old books, newer books, just different resources. Um, it's actually a kind of art and a science. Yeah, and um, and uh, we we're interested in recovering Field Julie's original catalog plants, but also if we find something awesome and delicious. Uh, that might not be around uh, anymore. Uh, we're going to save it. And so what we're, that's what we're really trying to do is um, record and share Felix Julie's um, horticultural legacy. Um, and at the same time, trying to go out and find all these rare and delicious plants that may no longer be available. And so we're trying to save extinct varieties or thought to be extinct or rare or um, were useful plants. Aha. Uh-huh. So did Felix Gillet actually have a catalog? Is that one of your reference points or one of Jennifer's reference points? Uh, yes. He was putting out catalogs from 1870 to his passing in 1908. And then um, a, another man, uh, Parsons, uh, bought the nursery and changed it from what Felix Gillet had called it was the Baron Hill Nursery, and Parsons had renamed it the Felix Gillet Nursery. Uh-huh. And he ran it, and it ran into the sixties. Oh, and at that time, it was actually the longest running nursery, uh, from what I understand, in Northern California, or even the second. But it was a uh, it was, ran for like almost a hundred years. Uh huh. And did he keep um, selling some of the heritage plants that you're interested in now? Yes, and he took over. He sold all the same stuff that Felix Gillet had, but he had put in a lot more ornamentals. And you know, obviously, over another forty, fifty years, the catalog changed. Um, but what Felix Gillet was instrumental in, like in his first couple catalogs, he had about two hundred and forty-one grapes in one catalog. Um, so there's probably a lot to unpack there. He may, you know, be some of the the first person to introduce a few of those varieties. Um, so what kind of trees are we talking about or what kind of plants are we talking about? Because it's not just trees, I know. Yeah, well, uh, plants have been a useful companion uh, to us for a long time. And there's just so many plants that still are out there. Um, but <clears throat> some of the longest living ones that we find most frequently are um, apples, chestnuts, walnuts, plums. But we also find <clears throat> roses, peaches. We find a lot of cherries, uh, figs, um, ornamentals, pomegranates, grapes, cranberries. Um, yeah, I'm sure mulberries, persimmons. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, the list just goes on. You know, we... we we find and we propagate about 20, 20 different species, and uh-huh. we propagate about 200 varieties uh-huh. of things that we have found or personally recovered from these old trees. And uh, there's a percentage of those that you really can't find anywhere else, that we think we may be the only people that have that and are oh, wow. disseminating that biodiversity back. Uh-huh. So that's that. That's a, a, a partial answer to one of my questions, which is why why are these valuable? But I wanted to ask about a particular tree, um, 
that I saw a reference to one of, I think, one of Amigo Bob's earliest, earlier projects, which is the chestnut. Um, he and friends, according to this article in the New York Times, I think it was, collected lots and lots of nuts and um, and tested them for peelability and for taste and chose chose five. But what 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 about Dutch elm? Uh, not Dutch elm disease. What about chestnut blight? Um, why do we have California chestnuts or chestnuts in California? Um, yeah, so you might be referring to the the chestnut blight on the East Coast that wiped out the large groves. Right. Um, that blight is, uh, from what I understand, uh, the East Coast is much more uh, moist and humid. Uh-huh. And so that's where that blight develops. Um, and I believe that California is so dry uh, that we maybe don't have that out here. Uh-huh. And those are also the American chestnuts that were on the East Coast. Right. On the West Coast, it's mostly, um, you know, these uh, of these larger chestnuts, like um, hybrids. Of, you, they're originally, I believe, walnuts or Middle Eastern, Iraq, Iran, Turkey area. Uh-huh. Um, and then they, they flourished well in France. And that's where Felix Gillet was from. So when he got here, he knew they would do really well. Um, but the chestnuts uh, are a lot, I think they're hybrids of Chinese chestnuts ah. and these um, kind of Middle Eastern chestnuts. I see. And so it's different genetics, and they, they're not, from what I understand, they aren't affected or uh, minimally affected by that same blight that yeah. infected the American growth. Okay. So we haven't really preserved the American chestnut here uniquely. No, we believe we, believe we found a few out here. Um, but we get to, I don't know if we've actually confirmed it with an expert. Uh-huh. Yeah, so um I I had a question about identifying things. I um I brought some heritage apples from the old orchard that that um I ended up with on my farm to our oh. resident apple ex, expert uh, Richard Jeske who um who now goes by two trees Sanapon um and he, he really is an expert, but he declared that uh, small red apples are really hard to ID. So <laughs> how, how, how does this, how do you do this? Yeah, so um, Jennifer's really the main person who does it, but I also do it. Um, but it's, uh, well, it's interesting. You got to learn the anatomy of an apple and you got to, just through a lot of observation, you figure out the differences um, that uh-huh. each one has. Because what I love about apples is they're like humans, and they're different. You know, if you get a red, delicious apple, you, you plant all the seeds, you're never going to get that same apple. It might be similar, might be totally different, but they're genetically different. And um, so uh, if you learn to observe, you know, when the flowering date is, uh, when it's ripe, how big it is, how, color, how its coloring is, does it have little dots or lenticels? How big uh, is the calyx opening? How long is the stem? Uh, how long does it store? Um, and so by even looking at some of those characteristics, you can kind of narrow it down um, to even like a class or a family maybe. Um, and then uh, through observation and just pouring through different resources, you know, um, you make your, you know, Sometimes you're you're 100% sure, and sometimes you're like, ah, probably. Uh-huh. Um, 
And then uh, people can get leaves genetically tested against the USDA genetic database, uh, oh. but those are also expensive. And, you know, they don't have all of the genetics, um, but they do have a lot. Mm-hmm. So it does create clarity. Uh-huh. Yeah, so that process requires um, a good year's worth of observation, it sounds like, uh, from from dormancy to to budding to flowering to fruiting to... Uh, how long it how long it keeps right yeah it could be years of it could be years of observation in fact uh, different apples have different expressions uh depending where they're going you know and wine is called terroir but you know depending on the season when the rains were uh what kind of soil how much sun did it get did it get you know frosted out during flower um it can create small apples or weird apples different years uh-huh and then um you know a lot of these heirlooms they're not as like a lot of the apples today are bred for consistency. So you go in, you know what a Honeycrisp looks like. A lot of these older heirlooms, there's, I feel like there's more character and more variety and uh, more changeability um, in how they look, you know, and how they express themselves uh-huh. phenotypically. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, after years, after kind of, sometimes, you know, you're like, wow, that's a winter banana apple. That is a Bramley's apple. Like some of them just stand out and you're like, that's what that is. Gotta uh, be. Uh-huh. And, and others, uh, takes a lot more. Yeah. Sometimes it'll take a month. Sometimes it'll take a year. Sometimes maybe after five years, we're like, holy moly. You know, uh-huh. I just found, um, I can't remember the name right now, but there's a small red apple <laughs> that I've been looking at for about 10 years. And uh, it has a unique shape and flavor, and it ripens real early. And I'm pretty sure I found it, you know, after like 10 years. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. How interesting. So given the genetic variability with apples in particular, um, you've got to take cuttings. Um, you want to talk about the propagation process? I, I know it's going to be different for um, each species, but but um, tell us about how you do it. Actually, before you do that, let me just take a little break and remind our listeners that you're listening to the Farm and Garden Show. This is KZYX and Z um, with your host, Michael Foley, and we're talking to Adam Newber of the Felix Gillet Institute in um, outside of Nevada City. So, um, yeah, let's talk about propagation. How How do you do this? Yeah, um, you know, it's uh, every like like you said, like every species and sometimes even varieties can be different. But there's different ways to propagate different plants. Um, a lot of people know taking cuttings, and some plants can just take cuttings certain times a year in the right condition, and they grow roots. And boom, there you go, you got a new plant. Uh-huh. Um, uh, with apples, uh, what we do. As uh, we graft them, and so there's different ways of grafting, and it depends on what time of year and what kind of rootstock you're working with. But ultimately, we either dormant graft or we chip bud or tea bud um, into a rootstock. Uh huh. So, what's the difference between those two? Yeah. So, um, like with apples, for instance, you can take uh, a dormant cutting when it's wintertime and there's no leaves on the tree and you cut a little stick with three nodes on it and you, 
literally just cut it with a sharp knife and you cut the same uh, cut on a rootstock or a branch and you just stick them together so the cambiums match uh-huh. and you tie it up. And like magic, the can- if the cambiums are touching that live tissue in there, um, they will callus up and form a union and become one tree. Yeah. And just to, just to be clear for our listeners, a cambium is the – well, you, you explained it. You're the nurseryman. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's um, – they say it's like – you know, I've heard different, but it's just a few uh, le- cell layers thick. Um, and it's just inside the wood and inside the wood and outside of the like, – no, inside the bark and outside the wood. Uh-huh. So it's just this little thin layer in there, uh, xylem and phloem. Uh-huh. And it, it's usually that that darker layer just under the under the um, the bark. Um, you know what? There's like if you yeah, just under the bark, there's actually a live green. Ah, uh, right. Right on the from what I understand, it's like right on the inside of the bright green. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and then uh, so that's with like a dormant, but uh, if it's like a spring, you or um, the fall, you might want to bud, and that's instead of taking a stick, you actually just cut a little um, shield out of the stick where the bud is, and you cut the leaf off, and you literally just cut a little the same hole in the rootstock, and you place that bud inside. And you wrap it up, and it'll fuse together. Uh huh. And what do you use in, in the case of apples, um, since they're so common, and especially um, in, in much of inland Mendocino, apples and pears and uh, French prunes are about all all we can grow. Um, what um, what sort of rootstock do you use when you're do, when you're doing the apples? You use yeah, the modern so- rootstocks. Yeah, so, I mean, rootstocks are fascinating, and the history of rootstocks are fascinating. Um, a lot of the trees that we find are grown on seedlings, and so those are called standard rootstocks. Yeah. Um, and that means they get they can be 40 feet tall, and they can live 100, 200 years. Yeah. Um, a lot of today's trees are grown on dwarf or semi-dwarf. Um, and so the semi-dwarf is real popular with backyard gardening because they're smaller trees. They're easier to pick, and they they don't live quite as long. Uh-huh. Um, and then the dwarf is often used for industrial commercial production, where they're dwarfing trees, uh, which um, gets them to create fruit quicker and grow them real densely. So there's just more fruit per square foot. Yeah, I've seen them. I've seen them packed in. Just a few feet away from one another, and um, not much taller than um, one one of us could reach. And yeah, <clears throat> um, yeah. Uh, so um, beyond propagation, and and I know it's different for for every species, um, but but I think you've probably outlined the the, the basics. But beyond propagation. W- well, where do you find these varieties? Yeah, so there's multiple ways and avenues that we actually come to know these trees. 
Uh, one is, uh, well, Amigo, he started Peaceful Valley. He started, he helped start Eco Farm. Um, his resume is ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, in the 60s, he, him and his friends, I believe, would drive around. And when they're driving around, uh, they find all these old homesteads and all these old orchards. Um, and they were in farming. You know, I'm sure they wanted to glean these trees. And uh, the history really started interesting him. And so he was, I'm sure people helped him. I'm sure Jen helped and supported him a lot um, in uh, recording them. And so that's kind of how it started is when I came along and helped the nursery along. Um, he already had a huge list of trees and contacts and people he's talked to. Uh-huh. And so it kind of started from there. And, uh, and then from then on, we would either go explore and find new stuff or people would tell us or people would email us or bring us on trips or, um, and so now it's at the point where people just are always telling us new places to go and come to come check out the trees. Uh huh. So, uh, but how far, how far afield do you go? I know when he was, um, I think he I think he came to the last not so simple living fair here in um in Boonville and he mentioned the project. This was I don't know, twenty thirteen, twenty fifteen. Um he mentioned the project and I didn't get to talk to him further, but I wanted to say, Hey, I know about this old transhumans orchard outside of um Sheep Ranch out uh, in Calaveras County. How far do you Go. How far did his travels take him in finding these old orchards and and sites? Yeah. Well, um, we've so Felix Jolet's original home is still here in Nevada City, and it's got a historical marker on it. Um, we had access to that house, which had all these original source documents in it still, and so we oh, actually wow. digitized all of them. And within there was correspondence all around the world. Um, he was getting postcards from you know, across the world, uh, Russia, Serbia, um, uh, South America, Europe, like all over the place. Uh-huh. Uh, he was, so, um, so we were able to kind of go through and document, uh, some of the original stuff and compare it to what we're finding now. Wow. And, oh yeah. And so most of, sorry, but most of our, we lived in Nevada city, North San Juan, and this is gold country. And uh-huh. so people came here, uh, you know, and they built old orchards and homesteads. This is where they were. And that's why we have such a dense cluster all throughout the foothills up here. Um, so we main, we, most of our exploration is within, you know, three or four counties around us. Um, but, you know, wherever we go, um, I'm actually, propag- we are propagating apples uh, from Yosemite National Park right now. Oh, really? Huh. Uh, yeah, so they contacted us and they wanted us to grow their rarest apples that they've had genetically tested. Uh-huh. So we, um, you know, we appreciate all of the fruit. Uh, okay, so if I sent you something from, say, the Albee Campground in um, Mendocino Redwood State Forest, um, you might be interested in it. Yeah, we love seeing um, all this old fruit and trying to identify it and and eating it and sharing the stories with people and uh, you know and bringing attention and appreciation to 
you know, the diversity that our ancestors had the, um, you know, knowledge and care for, you know, all these tens of thousands of varieties of stuff. Yeah. Um, and oftentimes a lot of this older fruit has more nutrition. Um, a lot of the newer varieties are simply bred with high sugar and to look really pretty. Yeah. You know, a lot of these older heirlooms, they've got more nuance, uh, maybe more, maybe more bitters, more phytochemicals, um, less sugar sometimes, um, but more substance. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, going back to apples, um, <laughs> I now I understood that the original cider apples were actually quite uh they were not dessert apples they they were um they were quite tart and not something that really has been preserved in the market is that true of of um some of the varieties that you're looking at yeah so i mean apple cider has a rich history uh wherever the apple has gone uh it's really easy to ferment an apple and get alcohol out of it um but um yes uh there is an art and a process of you know depending where you are um of making cider and developing a really good well-rounded um cider and that in involves like bitters you know and tannins and acid Mm -hmm. and uh you know i don't know all the particulars but getting the right balance of those um and the process of fermentation uh, develops all different kinds of, you know, subtleties of flavor of alcohol. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I think, you know, our market is saturated with sugar. We like everything sweet. Yeah. And so you'll, I think you'll find a lot of modern, uh, maybe commercial varieties are much more sweet than you might have found at a traditional place in England. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So let's let's talk about some of the other species that um that you work with. And and I know that um I guess last year you had pretty severe weather and damage to a, a lot of your your plants so you didn't have as many to offer this year. But what are what are the main ones that you have collected and that are periodically on offer? Yeah, so um, kind of like I had mentioned earlier, um, yeah, normally we provide a few thousand plants a year, and uh, there's a large demand, so we are going to get a little bigger. Um, but yeah, we had a poor season this spring with the hot, cold, the back and forth of the really hot, really cold, and uh-huh. then uh, we got some hail, and then it stunted a few of the trees that we had dormant grafted. Um, but what was interesting is that um, I'm switching over to a, the, the budding system or chip, chip budding system, and all of the ones I chip budded had no problem oh. going through the spring. Huh. And so it's just a better way of method. You can get more trees per stick. And so um, so that's what we're going to be doing probably uh, from here on out. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, so apples. We find a lot of apples, pears, plums, figs, chestnuts, walnuts, almonds, uh, figs, mulberries, cranberries, roses, grapes, um, uh, some other ornamentals, 
uh, myrtle communist, which is a really cool plant that I didn't know about until we spotted it. Hmm. Um, pomegranates. Um, you know, I'm sure I'm missing a few out there, but that's the meat. That's 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 a lot of them. You you mentioned that. Uh huh. Yeah. You Asian, mentioned Asian that Felix. Pears. Oh, Asian pears. Yep. Yeah. I think you mentioned that uh, Felix Gillet introduced filberts, I guess, what we'd call hazelnuts, to the Willamette Valley. Um, do you? Yeah, this is true. It's documented. Um, in the Oregon uh, University, they actually have Felix Gillet's handwritten filbert list. Oh, wow. That he, he had and, and sent to them. And uh, he had introduced the filbert and the du chili. Um, it's pollinator, and uh-huh. that became the established hazelnut for I don't know a hundred years. Oh wow! Um, but uh, but now it's actually some succumbing to a blight, and they're switching, and and it's now finally switching over. But I would imagine that a lot of them still have the genetics of um, what he had originally imported into the United States. Uh huh. Just want to remind my listeners that you're listening to the Farm and Garden Show on KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. We also stream live at KZYX.org, and many of the programs, including this one, are posted on jukebox at kzyx.org so that you can go back to them and listen to the whole thing if you missed part of them. Okay, let's go back to our interview with Adam Newber of the Felix GLA Institute. So what kind of what kind of quantity of varieties do you have? How many how many apple varieties, how many chestnut varieties, how many etc. Um, yeah, and, and so that's kind of the magic of all of this is that we're always finding more, and um, there's just so many. Uh, like I said, we uh, we propagate about 200 different varieties of things. Um, I think it spans about 23 BC, and um, the apples. I think because of their genetic propensity for diversity, we and uh, they're such a strong, long-lived plant that we find the most apples. And we probably have about a hundred varieties of apples, uh-huh. um, and those are just ones that we've like confirmed and we've gone back to. But there's still like thousands of trees out there yeah. that we're we're always returning to or finding new stuff of. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, and pears, maybe about two dozen uh, figs, over a half dozen. Um, there's one chestnut and a few walnuts. Um, so Felix Gillet, he imported the original, they say, English walnuts into California, uh, the Maywan, the Franquette, and then these all became the base genetics for the new walnuts. Oh, is that right? And so, so he's also credited uh, with kind of, you know, jump-starting that by just importing the, the right varieties that, that did well here and were delicious. Uh-huh. And almonds as well. I understand he introduced the first almond trees. Is that right? Well, you know, I don't know if I've actually found that. Um, you know, it's it's all hard. It's, a, it's like there's a. I don't think almonds 
Um, from what I understand about almonds, there's a guy, A.T. Hatch, in California who, who imported uh, lots of almond seeds and planted uh-huh. them out. And I believe the non and the, uh, the one that we eat today uh, came out of that. Uh-huh. And along with another one called IXL. And that's also a really good almond and real flat and was considered prime, primo back in the day. Uh-huh. Uh, we, found a, we found a few of those. Um, I'm finding more and more almonds, more in like uh, where it's a little hotter. Yeah. But there are some really cool almonds that we're finding now. Uh, one of them is like super long, like two inches long. Wow. Um, and it has like a real strong, like that kind of amaretto flavor. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. It's just like you never know what you're going to find. It's really fun uh, exploring and trying to find new ones, collecting yeah. them all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's the temptation. How do you select? How do you decide what, um, which ones you're going to take? Well, the first off is, uh, well, it's about use, I would say. But I would say the number one is like, is it delicious? Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I would say that was probably the prima. But, um, you know, but it's also really about use. Like our relationship to food is way different than it used to be with our great-grandparents. Um, like just take apples, for instance, because... They're just a great example for everything. I love them. Um, but we go in and we get a fresh-eating apple from the store, right? And that's it. But back in the day, we didn't have all that. And so you would have early apples. You'd have mid-season yeah. apples. You'd have late-season apples. You'd have storage apples. You know, you'd have pie. You'd have food for your pigs. So you get bacon, um, you know? And then, you know, different ones had different uses. Like, these are your sauces, and these are your pies, and these are your fresh-eaters, and these are your storage um, you know, our life depended on it. And, you know, it was a co-creation between humans, animals, and plants, uh-huh. you know, that developed that biodiversity. Um, and so over the years, everyone, every family, every community, every county uh, would have the best and spread them around, um, you know, until it kind of bottlenecked in, uh, during the Industrial Revolution when people moved away from the farms and stopped holding on to the genetics and then moved to work in factories. Yeah. And then the consolidation of the industry happened, and that let go a lot of all this other stuff. And we became more dependent on this kind of industrialized, uh, kind of wasteful uh, system. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, your mention of early season, late season, mid-season um, reminded me. I just went out and bought... Um, three more apple trees, and this time I was <laughs> careful about um, making sure they, they would have pollinators, um, but I'm afraid that I chose all early pollinators, which is a little dangerous in inland um, Mendocino County at 1,500 feet. Um, <laughs> so um, I, I regretted that decision almost as soon as I had made it. Um, but, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I wouldn't be surprised, you you know, uh, there's just so much, uh, like if you're over there, there's so many apples around. Um, I bet you there's am- apples within a mile of you uh, that'll pollinate those trees. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. But uh, I know it's something to consider. Uh, and you can even graft new branches since apples are the, if you want to learn how to graft, apples are the easiest. Uh-huh. And you can, if you find one that you like, you know, you can always just experiment, you know, do a little graft, watch a couple YouTube videos. Um, and don't cut yourself. <laughs> or or go to two trees. He's, he's happy to show yep. folks how to do that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, go to the go to the seed swaps and the science swaps, and there's always grafting demonstrations. And oftentimes, there's some really cool old timers with good stories that'll just graft a tree for you and send you home with it. Yeah, yeah, interesting. We we just had a series of seed swaps here. I think it's not quite finished. Um, the various granges in the county. Um, mostly we're, we're sponsoring them, but I, the, the one here in Willits, I didn't see any science, um, any, uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and there used to be well, a seed and is, science I, swap. Yeah, go ahead. I haven't, yeah, I haven't been in there. Actually, I love going to the Boonville science swap. Yeah. Um, it's one of my favorite places to go. Um, and I don't, I don't know if they, uh, if I had missed it already, but normally it's, uh, I think, booming. yeah, I think it didn't happen. Um, I think yeah. it hasn't happened for a couple, three years, um, and I'm not sure. Uh, okay. I'll have to ask somebody over there. Yeah. Yeah, gotcha. Um, yeah, well, that's really inspiring because, um, as I said, I know of some old orchards. Apparently there were like 15 commercial orchards in in Willits as late as the 60s. Um, wow. My area alone, the small ones, you know, nothing, not not like – we're not talking Sonoma County. We're talking yeah. Um, yeah. Mendocino County. Um, but but still, there are some old trees out there that um, would be worth following. And, yeah, uh, there's little there's little groups everywhere, and it's really easy to do, and um, it's super fun. And you know, it's uh, you know, you never know. You might find one that you know is uh, not around anymore, or uh, that you find. You know, it deepens your connection with your food. Uh huh. You know, most. Food's about stories, I find. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're going out and you're exploring uh, a mountainside and it's fall and you happen upon an apple tree and it's got some ripe apples on it and you eat it, that might be the best apple you ever eat in your life. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, if that was just like at the bottom of a basket that you bought um, at a store, it might not seem as delicious. Yeah. Yeah, this transhumans... Uh supposedly transhumans orchard that I mentioned outside of Sheep Ranch in Calaveras County. Um, I, I encountered it when I was at the Catholic Worker Farm there in 1980 and um, ate the the best wine sap I have ever had off of yeah, one, of, one of those trees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that's the thing, though, too, is like fresh off the tree, backyard apples, you can't beat it, um, that freshness. You know, most of the some apples you eat in the store are like a year old, you know, yeah. um, you know, stored, grown in Chile with lots of nitrogen and water, um, you know, so they're kind of just like watery uh, and sugary, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the flavor and the subtlety and the uh, the nuance of, uh, of a wild heirloom apple, um, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. I, I did want to ask, is that a thing, a transhumans orchard? Um, do you run into those in your... Well, what do you mean by that? Well, what I was told was that the cattlemen from the valley, from the Central Valley, would drive their herds up into the Sierras for summer pasture. Um, and they planted apple trees on the way down. This was about 4,000, 4,800 feet. Um, so that when they drove the cattle down, they'd have apples to harvest. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, I um, that is, uh, I believe that's just a hundred percent true, and that just makes sense. You know, that's of course that's what you would do. Um, there's an old orchard that I love uh, down near Jackson, California. It's five acres of apples, and there's a bunch of them that are labeled. It's amazing. Huh. 
Um, and there's, you know, there's probably over 25 varieties of just fruit and not there. Um, and the family kind of kept the history alive. So I got a lot of good information about the intent of the farm and uh, how times were. And they had planted um, a maiden's blush apple tree right on the side of the road because it was, uh, I think it was because it was an earlier uh, ripening apple when uh, cowboys came by and they could pick the tree huh. as they rode by. Uh-huh. Wow. Wow. <clears throat> oh, and that's, that's real um, community spirit too, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, and with that, you know, with our, with food independence and with like food sovereignty and like having food and like your culture not exported, you know, and having it around you, you depend more on your community and you, we, we input more in our community and we communicate more. And, uh, you know, when we, and, you know, supporting each other becomes essential like that. Yeah. 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 I'm sure they would get beef, you know, I'm sure they would, they would provide them with, <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, things, you know, were different. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's probably true. That's the way things, well, it's the way things still work for some of us around here um, and throughout the country. Yeah. Um, a lot of that is hidden away because some of it's illegal. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. But it's a real thing in the countryside. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Community and, you know, food and so much about community of food and history and story and, um, you know, supporting each other. Yeah. So speaking of story, do you have any particular um, varieties that you have stories you're really fond of uh, that you want to share with us? Yeah, you know what? There's so many. Um, I really like that Maiden's Blush apple story. Yeah, that's that a great one. Told. Um, uh, but, you know, there's just so many. If you like, we're going to be updating our website, but the thing is, is every fruit tree has a story. Um, and and we, try to, we try to pronounce that, you know, like even on our website or when we're talking about it, like the tree has a story. Um, from where it originated, but it also has stories surrounding the people who took care of them um, at the time and ate off of them. And so we try to include that in the descriptions of where we found it and what the town was doing at the time. And then also historically, where is it, where did it come from? Uh, you know, oftentimes, which makes it even more confusing, is apples or fruit have different names, but it's the same variety. Uh, yeah. You know, so if it was grown in one county in year 1200 and then move to the next one like bartlett everyone knows the bartlett pear right uh-huh. um, it's the bartlett pear but that's because mr bartlett grew it before that it was william bond Chrétien, from what i understand uh-huh. and before that it has a hundred names uh-huh. so um there's a trail there of stories uh just with that one piece of fruit that we eat uh-huh Before we go on, I want to remind our listeners that you are listening to the Farm and Garden Show on KZYX and Z, Philo, Ukiah, Willits, and Fort Bragg. And this is your host, Michael Foley. We're speaking with Adam Newber of the Felix Gillet Institute in North San Juan, Nevada City, California. And and I understand that a lot of the trees that you are you are um, 
propagating off of are a hundred years old that um, they have this story that reaches back almost to the days of Felix Gillet. Yeah, well, yeah, and beyond, um, honestly. So uh, there's definitely trees from before Felix Gillet that we found. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, yeah, many of them are 100 years years old. Um, and these old with just documented, you know, histories going back. And so... Like I said, it was kind of like an agricultural historical library out here. And uh, every year we're finding more and more that die. Uh-huh. And so we'll go back. Oh, yeah, that one's gone. Oh, that one's gone. Oh, I didn't get to even try that one. Uh-huh. Um, and I think as the weather, if it stays kind of extreme, I imagine that'll cause even more stress. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we kind of believe that, you know, this is kind of the high time to go out and find a lot of those lost varieties, you know, and bring them back. And what's cool about it is that they've lived in your community for a hundred years. So they've survived, they've adapted. Um, they do good in your microclimate. Yeah. So if you find really good ones, they're, they're precious, you know? Yeah. You know, it could have been something going back, you know, we have a, you know, there's the lady apple that we found. Um, it's a somewhat common out. You can kind of find it. Um, it's not like readily available in the stores. But, you know, from what I understand, it goes back 2,000 years at least. Uh-huh. Uh, recorded history to Rome. Uh, these little crab apples that are ripe during Christmas. Uh, um, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, you can just follow any thread. Uh, and there's a trail of breadcrumbs to follow and um, <laughs> cool things to learn. So every year you um, sell a certain number of plants to a certain number of people. Uh, in the interests of um, creating more breadcrumbs. Do you keep track of that, of where they're going and who they're going to? You, you know, uh, it's something I do loosely, um, but uh, it's something I'd like to more actively engage uh, people with uh-huh. um, and try to create more of a map of like, hey, um, this guy in Colorado got this apple tree and it did really well. Uh-huh. Or, you know, this person got this tree in new york and it's doing really well and you know gather information you know um, about these and we can contribute to their stories and you know find how they can be useful to people here yeah yeah wow um i think i think we're drawing to a close here i wanted to make sure that people knew know how to find you um and yeah so we um we have a website. Uh, it's being updated, but it's org, and that's F-E-L-I-X-G-I-L-L-E-T.org. Um, we have a pretty active Facebook, Felix Gillet Institute, and it, um, you know, we have a lot of our photos and stories that go back years. So you oh. can actually look at a lot of these fruit pictures and see where we've discovered them and the people we were with. Um, And so between the Facebook and the website, um, there's a lot of information. And then we have plant sales every so often. Uh, We have it normally every October or November. And and sometimes we have a spring and a summer potted sale. And that helps fund our nonprofit. Um, It's a nonprofit nursery and uh, educational agricultural institute. 
Um, and uh, there's, we're just trying to get more and more information, uh, you know, historically about Felix Delay and just trying to get people to appreciate um, and take care of the biodiversity and the legacy left to us by, um, you know, people throughout the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, and peoples throughout the world, I think, is is really important to underline. Um, there's a lot of interest in the sorts of sorts of um, crops that the current crop of immigrants are bringing to us. Um, but um, I think we. We need to recognize that that's just part of a long tradition. Felix Gillet was a, an immigrant himself who brought uh, crops from his native France, but also from elsewhere. And lots yep. of other people did the same. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Luther Burbank and, um, oh, uh, what was it a California nursery down south? Um, but yeah, there was, and then also not just the major nurseries, but then just people moving here from all over the world and yeah. people moving from the East coast and, yeah. you know, um, yeah. So there's like, you know, it's a, uh, it's food, you yeah. know, we all eat and it's like having good plant allies and human allies. Yeah. And it goes the other way too. Carl Purdy here in Mendocino County, um, uh, sent a lot of native, especially flowering varieties back east and developed cultivars that now are widely used. And um, <clears throat> so there's, a, there's this constant interchange. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's alive. It's a, yeah, it's alive. Exactly. Um, famous book that um, I read early in my uh, short career as a Latin American studies um, professor was um, called the Columbian Exchange um, yeah. about the exchange between the so-called new world and the old world of um, all sorts of plants and animals and uh, for good or for ill um, that was an, an important factor in world history that um, yeah exactly and then also a slightly sour note but it's also worth noting that um, a lot of the stuff are kind of colonizer plants and sort of recognizing that this was indigenous land yeah, and it was overtaken by, even though we can still appreciate the fruit, but that time period and the colonization that happened uh, was uh, devastating. Yeah. Um, and it, it was a real travesty um, behind that. Yeah. So just kind of at least recognizing that and the indigenous land and working together to create opportunities uh, for all of us. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's about trying to some extent to write that balance. It'll never entirely be righted. Um, those, those amazing wildflowers that Carl Purdy helped develop used to carpet the floors of, of the San Joaquin Valley and in John Muir's day and uh, are no longer there. And Yeah, uh, and from what I understand, it was a com uh, the indigenous system of agriculture is maybe and probably is superior than what we have today. Yeah. In fact, it definitely is. You yeah. know, they were cultivating things that were already here. You know, they didn't need to farm the you know acorn trees. They didn't need the, everything was here. Uh, yeah. There was game everywhere. There was fish everywhere. Um, you know, certain tribes tended to roots that naturally grew. So they didn't need to create this 
industrialized system. It was an alive system, yeah. you know, where these are our companions. These are our family. These are ancestors. Um, they're alive and we're with them. Um, but with colonization became like an externalization of all of it, um, you know, and just kind of distilled down to material. Yeah. 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 There were, uh, there are around 14,000 people in and around Little Lake Valley where I live. Uh, We import probably 95 or more percent of our food. Uh, 200 years ago, there were probably half that number. I'm not sure of what the anthropologists say of Native Americans and all the food came from the region. Um, so yeah. that's the yeah, that's and, wake yeah. Up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then a lot of the food that we're talking about, like all these fruit that we are finding, um, you know, a lot of these fruits originate worldwide. You know, we're talking Middle East, yeah, China, um, Europe, uh, um, Kazakhstan, uh, where's where apples, you know, peaches come from China, walnuts come from the so called Middle East, um. You know, and then there's just foods from all around the world uh, that originated there and traveled for millennia. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's like, a, you know, it's a beautiful story to tell that reconnects us to uh, life, you yeah. know, and each other. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, Adam, this has been really good, and um, I really appreciate your taking the time. Um, and, again, for people who want to find out more the website is Felix Gillet, Felix dot org, right? Um, yep, F E L I X G I L L E T dot org, um, yep. or Felix Gillet Institute on Facebook. So, um, yep, and uh, yeah, but we just finished our sale. We sold out of everything again. Um, so right now, the fruit profiles aren't on there. But everything will be back up. We'll have over 100 fruit profiles with pictures and stories and histories up there uh, soon. Great. And uh, I will see you when I pick up my few plants on Saturday, weather permitting. (laughs) Yeah, weather permitting. Um, Awesome. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to it. Okay. All right. Good. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us. Okay. Bye bye. Before we close, I want to speak a little more about the figure of Amigo Bob Cantasano. The LA Times obituary referred to him as a towering figure in West Coast organic agriculture, and he truly was. According to the Times, his friend and colleague Sam Earnshaw recalled accompanying Cantasano to the palatial headquarters of one large Salinas business. Cantasano, an unwavering aficionado of short sandals and rainbow-colored tie-dye who went by the nickname named Amigo since his teen years, spoke to a boardroom full of no-nonsense farm managers about organic techniques. They treated him with the utmost respect, Earnshaw said. He had encyclopedic knowledge. He listened to their problems. He never went in saying, you're diabolical. He always offered alternatives. And indeed, he was a farm advisor to large and small alike, as the testimony of Irene Engber makes clear. The two of them led, that is, Earnshaw and Cantasano, led the annual farm tour at Echo Farm, where participants visited three or four farms from the fruitful valleys of Santa Cruz County to the Hollister Plain. 
Amigo Bob arranged the tours on the basis of his vast knowledge of organic farms across the state, and he had the highest respect for the people we visited, from large growers like Dick Pachot of Lakeside Organics to the smallest biodynamic farm. Every year he would gently and insightfully interview one of the really old-timers in a session at Echo Farm dedicated to remembering the stories of the past. And as we have heard, he had a passion for recovering not just those stories, but the crops that went with them. The Felix Gillet Institute is the fruit of that effort. The Farm and Garden Show can be heard every first and third Thursday, hosted by Elizabeth Archer, and every fourth Thursday, hosted by myself and Sarah Grusky. Next month, and this is what I promised last month, but we'll do it this time, we hope to have as our guest Donna DeTerra to speak with Sarah about Donna's concept of full-circle herbalism, based in locally found and grown herbs and made available according to need throughout the community. They'll also discuss the mobile apothecary project that both have been working on together with the Mendocino Herb Guild. Again, you've been listening to the Farm and Garden Show every first, third, and fourth Thursdays at 3 p.m. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.